I'd like to introduce you to Florence, uh, who will be not only delighting us with her singing voice, but will be bringing us the Bible reading as well. Thank you, Florence. And Mama was from the back. <laughs> Sorry. Um, les onze disciples se rendirent en Galilée, sur la colline que Jésus leur avait indiquée. Quand ils le virent, ils l'adorèrent. Certains d'entre eux, pourtant, eurent des doutes. Jésus s'approcha et leur dit, « Tout pouvoir m'a été donné dans le ciel et sur la terre. Allez donc auprès des gens de toutes les nations et faites de mes disciples. Baptisez-les au nom du Père, du Fils et du Saint-Esprit. Et enseignez-leur à pratiquer tout ce que je vous ai commandé. Et sachez-le, je vais être avec vous tous les jours jusqu'à la fin du monde. » Wonderful, thank you. Now, who understood at least more than two words of that? Uh, you understood all of it? or No, <laughs> a little bit of it. I think I heard Galilee, uh, and there was a word that sounded like Jesus in there. Um, I think. Um, I'm not too sure, but that was French. Uh, and that was the Great Commission, which we're looking at this morning. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to it. Uh, it is in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And for those of you who didn't understand that, uh, I will read it in English uh, for us. The Great Commission uh, comes at the very end of the, the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, it's the very last words recorded to us, uh, quoting Jesus word for word. Uh, and it, uh, I guess, caps off the entire Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so let's read that together. Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Powerful words, big words. And, and as we, we look this morning, I want to talk just briefly about this. And, and when we think about the Great Commission, I, I want us to think of something else. You know, when you hear the words Great Commission, I want you to think of the four alls. Okay? Because if we look at the passage, there are four alls here. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, this is a, a, a significant thing for Jesus to claim. This is a significant shift in the story of, of how disciples viewed Jesus. This is a move pre or before the resurrection, where Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher, he was a friend. Uh, he was someone who did great miracles. He certainly had authority. He spoke as one with great authority. He healed demons. Uh, healed demons. He didn't heal demons. He cast demons out and he healed the sick uh, and the lame and the blind. Uh, he, he did incredible things. But here, post-resurrection, following the resurrection of Jesus, we see this significant change. I have been given all authority. God the Father saw fit to entrust all authority in heaven and on earth in Jesus. Here we see a shift from Jesus being rabbi uh, to Jesus being Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is someone with authority and power. He's in charge. And so as one with authority, 
he gives a command. The, the language here in verse 19, therefore go and make. This is a very, very strong language he uses here. It's not a suggestion. It's not if you feel up to it. It's not um, if you're so inclined. It, it is a command. It is command language. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Here's our second all. All the nations. Not, not some. Uh, you know, the, the way you think all means is how he intends it. All. Everything. Everyone. Without exclusion. All nations. Not just the Jews. Not just uh, the Gentile nations who were once Jews, sort of attached to the Jews around them. But, but everybody. No one is excluded. Go and make the subs of all the nations, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Um, make them disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to, and here's our third all, obey all the commands. We don't like that word, do we? Obey. When's the last time your pastor has come up to you and said, look, I wanna, I'm going to help you to obey. I don't think you're being obedient in this. I'm, I'm going to hold a mirror up to you and... yeah. I'm too much of a soft touch for that. I'll declare anything from the pulpit, but one-on-one, I'm I'm much softer. Uh, (laughs) So, um, you know, but but when we are up here, when we declare the Word of God, when we unpack the Scriptures, we're helping you to understand what the will of God is so that you can uh, act in accordance with it, that you can be obedient to it. Uh, But hang on, didn't Jesus do away with all the commands? Didn't the Old Testament laws, wasn't that all fulfilled in Jesus and we're now free of it? Well, no, Jesus gives lots of instruction. This is one of them. This is one of the commands to go make disciples. So we're to go and to teach, to obey all the commands, not some, all of them. Uh, And be sure of this, and I might be stretching it a little bit here, but it fits with the four alls. I will be with you always. Um, So we've got one here. Now, it's incredible here um, that the Gospel of Matthew starts and ends the same way. So in Matthew's Gospel, we start with the, the story of uh, the, the proclamation that the Messiah will be coming, that the, the promised one will be born. Uh, and in chapter 1, we read the angels, they're making this, this prophetic declaration, singing this song over, and, and Jesus is given a name there, right at the very beginning of the Gospel, and that name is Emmanuel. And the name Emmanuel there means God, God is with us. Uh, that God is with us. So at the very beginning of the gospel, we're given this declaration that God will be with you. And then here at the very end, to round off the gospel, uh, we get the exact same promise. Be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There is this promise. And, and what comforting word that is, that the king of kings, the one with all authority on heaven and earth, will be with us. No matter where we go, no matter what we do, uh, particularly, uh, I think, in the context, when we are going and making disciples of all nations, when we are teaching to obey commandments, that when we're in the work of doing that, that the God, Jesus is with us uh, always. So as we think of the, the Great Commission, um, there's the four alls, okay? You can think of that, the four alls. Now... I have a question about this because you've heard this preached numerous times. If this is new to you, can I tell you, it's not hard to get your head around, okay? Um, What you know of Christ, the relationship you have with Jesus, go and help others to have the same thing. If it's a blessing to you, if it's of use to you, go and help others be blessed and, 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 and find benefit from this relationship with Jesus that comes with the good news. We have good news to share, so go do it. 
It's not hard. The hard bit's doing it. It's not hard to understand it. It's hard to do it. So I have this question around this. How has the church gone with it? As we think back over the you know, past 2,000-odd years, how has the church gone with fulfilling the Great Commission? Because if we take the Old Testament as an example, um, you know, when Jesus says these words to the disciples, knowing that he's got the whole backlog of the Old Testament experience there, I wouldn't be too hopeful if I was Jesus. Because as we look at the Old Testament, isn't the Old Testament just a story of failure after failure after failure? I mean, who here was sat there reading the Old Testament? And you're so frustrated with the Israelites. You were so angry at them because you're sitting there thinking, what kind of idiots are these? I mean, if I was there, I wouldn't stuff up like they did. I mean, it starts from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. God creates everything perfectly. Everything is wonderful, peaceful, harmonious. They walk in the cool of the evening with God, their Father. And, and, and right there, at the very beginning, when everything is so good and right... They choose to rebel against God. They fall for the temptation that you can be God. Oh, okay, great, really? Yeah, no, you won't die if you, if you, if you rebel against God. You know, God doesn't mean that. So they rebel. It's all part. And then you see things just disintegrate. The very next generation, there is murder. They're killing one another out of jealousy and envy. Um, it gets so bad. The earth it rebels so far against God. And we see the consequence of this rebellion. Now, it might have been a different story if they rebelled. And things got better. But it doesn't. They rebel and life gets worse. To the point where God looks upon the earth and says, oh, he almost regrets making humankind. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to start again. And he sends the flood. There's one person, and I'm not convinced he's the most righteous, holy man ever to live. But Noah, he says, you know, I will choose Noah to restart things all again. He's one that stands out from everybody else. So I'll choose him. And so they start again. Of course, his descendants, you'd think would have that story in their head. Um, God, you better watch out. God's, God's big and scary and awesome and mighty. You know, you better watch out or he'll get you. You would think with that in their heads, they would go about doing what God wants. But no, again and again, they make disobedient decisions. Again and again. And so they get to the point where um, they gathered together and, and they, they're rebelling against God so much. They, they're so puffed up with their own um, might and importance that they decide we'll build a tower. And this tower will reach to the heavens and it will be uh, we know it as the Tower of Babel um, because God looks and says, my goodness, if this is what they can do when they get together, what limit is there to the sinfulness they can, can come up with? And so he distributes them across the earth and confuses their languages. And so, uh, you know, that sounds like they're babbling to each other. Uh, they can't understand, a bit like Florence um, earlier. Not that you were babbling, you were wherever she's gone. Uh, it was beautiful. I, you, you put me to sleep listening to French language, I think, um, of a night time. It's so smooth. Um, but he confused the languages. And then from this point on, things change. There's a shift in the plan. God says, you know what? I'm going to do something about it, this rebelliousness. And so he chooses Abraham. And Abraham is a man that he chooses and says, you know what, I'm going to pick you. And from you I will create a people for myself. And the main purpose of having a people for myself is that you will be blessed and act as a witness to everybody else of what it is like to live in relationship with me. 
and that you ultimately will be a blessing to all nations. And so the view right from the very beginning is God will save all nations. And so they go along and uh, Abraham does all right, but you know, for some reason, over a period of you know, a few hundred years, the whole nation, God's people, end up as slaves in Egypt. What went wrong? Making disobedient decisions, choosing to rebel and forget God and neglect him. And so they end up in slavery. God's good. He frees them from slavery. They, they go and uh, he says, I'm going to now take you to the, the promised land. And you would think, having seen God wipe away their enemies, part the Red Sea, send the ten, ten plagues upon Egypt completely decimate the enemy's army setting us free with wagons full of gold going hey we were slaves a week ago now we're rich and we're on our own and we're free you would think experiencing that they would make good decisions don't you you scratch your head going how then a week later could they build a golden calf and bow down and worship it what kind of morons are these people are you with me why we wouldn't make the same choice it's ridiculous you look at it and again and again they get to the promised land oh no 10 people say no it's too hard for god we can't do this and they listen 40 years they wander the desert 40 years of experiencing god's goodness to them of feeding them and clothing them and and sheltering them they finally come back they enter the promised land but that's not good enough oh we want a king we want to be like everybody else why i'm your king god says why would you want a king well, we want to be like everybody else. But you know the king will put harsh taxes on you and recruit your children into his army and, and will place a heavy burden on you. Yeah, we don't care. We want a king. Okay, he gives them a king. Um, disobedient decisions again and again and again. The kings, you know, there's some good kings. There's some bad kings. And they end up dividing the kingdom. They end up at such a point where God says, you know what, after he sent prophets and people to warn them and 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 tell them how it is and to, to give forewarning that guys if you don't change your ways i'm gonna to have to do something about this they don't listen and so god sends them into exile uh, and of course there's a remnant he brings them back because uh, he's good and faithful and there's a remnant they sit there in the land but it's not their land it's occupied by the romans and that's where we find jesus coming onto the scene time and time again the old testament paints this picture of this disobedient Um, decisions that are made over and over again by God's people and yet God proves faith and this is the remarkable thing about God again and again and again and and look I've just skimmed the surface again and again and again comes back faithfully with grace and forgiveness and mercy and seeks to save and restore his people again that's the God that's revealed in the Old Testament and that's the people that's revealed in the Old Testament what on earth is going to change in the New Testament what hope is there How has the church gone in fulfilling the Great Commission? Well, I'm going to break this down to to three sections because it's really hard to track the the flow of the, the New Testament church. The Old Testament was about one people, one nation, together in a geographic location. It was easy to track their history. But now all of a sudden the church is comprised of people from every nation, every every tribe and every tongue. They're dispersed throughout all the nations. Uh, and the kingdom we're trying to track here is the kingdom of heaven that individuals belong to, even though they belong to different nations. And so it's harder to track. But along the way, as we look at, at Christian history, there are markers, significant moments where we see significant shifts and changes, particularly in regards to the Great Commission. So I'm going to focus on three areas. The first will be zero to, to 500. 
So I've got a little chart there to, to map it out for all you note takers um, as the, um, the years. So zero to 500. The first 500 years, you know your Old Test, uh, New Testament history, you know, they were great years. Great years. Early church, fantastic. Eyewitnesses to, uh, eyewitnesses to the, the death and resurrection of Jesus himself. Um, you know, my, my, my dad saw it. He was there. My grandfather used to tell me the stories. You know, so for a number of generations, they're, they're talking about people who knew Jesus, who, who spent time with him. And they're fervent. Now, it's not all good news. Um, most of the spread of the gospel at this point in time is due to persecution. That the church was persecuted by the Jews, by the Romans, uh, pretty much anywhere they were, uh, because they were viewed as a threat, because they were changing things. And so they, as they were dispersed, as they were kicked out um, and exiled from their own nations, they were not just going as families, they were going as carriers of the good news. And so the good news did spread, and it went out. There was also the work of the apostles. They were doing great stuff. They were deliberately heading out and going out into uncharted territory and taking the gospel with them. And it was a highlight. So much so that the the Christian church grew to such a degree that in 313 AD, they actually were successful in converting the emperor of Rome. That's a big deal. Uh, Constantine gives his life to Jesus. Now, we, we don't know if that's a political decision or if that was a personal revelation of Jesus and a response to Jesus. But it, it, it is taken off so much that the head of the Roman Empire converts. And then in 375 AD, the uh, Christian faith is, is officially declared to be the official religion of Rome. Now what that meant is the church and the state become one. The Christian church now has money, it now has power... They start building buildings and temples and churches uh, that are Christian. Uh, They start employing people, ministers and priests, to do the work of of the the church. The the interests of the church and the interests of the government of the Roman Empire kind of get blended. And so by the end of the first 500 years, you're kind of at a point where all that missionary zeal and the eyewitnesses of Jesus kind of peters out and plateaus. And the church somehow has sort of taken its eyes off of God and off of the good news and its eyes are now on, on the money and the power and the, the success that comes from, from making it to the top. And so it kind of peters out. The next thousand years, 500 to 1500 AD, is that same story. It, it plateaus. Being the official religion of Rome, it meant everywhere Rome went, the Christian faith went. And so the Christian faith spread. As the Roman Empire spread, so does Christian faith. And it spread something like this. Hi, you've now been conquered by, by Rome. And because we're Christians, you're now a Christian. Okay? Uh, we don't want to be Christians. Well, that, that's fine. Okay, yeah, we, we knew we'd encounter this. Um, that's not a problem. Um, you see, there is an alternative. Um, you can either convert to Christianity or you can die. Um, we're happy with either one. Like, you, you choose which one. And so the, the Christian gospel spread. Um, and yet somehow it, it's just plateaued. It's just bleh, flatlined. Um, because that's not the way 
that, that the Christian gospel is meant to be spread. Uh, the church somehow turns to violence in this period of time. Um, the threat of death and persecution of, of, you know, this is the persecuted people of Christ now flipping it on its head and persecuting others that they might turn and convert. This is the time of the Crusades where we're sending people in the name of Jesus to, to go and kill and murder um, Muslims to reclaim the Holy Lands. And, um, and, you know, there's a whole mix of politics and religion and all mixed up there. I've got time to go into it. But essentially, you know, they call it the Dark Ages for a reason. Um, it's a really dark period of history. Uh, and the church, as far as going out um, and, and spreading the good news and fulfilling the Great Commission, just ain't doing it. Now, there are pockets that are doing it. There's always, always throughout history, some that are doing it. So this is a period of time, and you've got to remember, this is before the Protestant Reformation. That's why 1500 is significant. That, that's a, a, a landmark moment in time. But before this, there's not Catholic and Protestant. It just is the church. And so you've got the, the Franciscan order of monks. You've got the Benedictine and the Dominican monks who are out there who are trying to take the gospel and the Bible to the common people, who are trying to live out um, the gospel in everyday life, detached from the power and the, the privilege that comes from, from the ruling um, church and their relationship with the state. So there, there are pockets where the gospel is being spread and talked about. Revival comes, you know, in the first year of the gospel being presented in um, the UK. Um, 10,000 baptisms are made in that first year as the gospel is brought to the United Kingdom, to, to Britain in that time. So there, there are pockets. But by and large, just flatline. And then, of course, you come to the Protestant Reformation. Now, this is a significant point of change because, um, and you need to understand where they're at, that the church had kind of made an idol out of the government. It, it, it had sided with power and, and, and money. Uh, and, and so the church at this point in time held the Bible in high esteem and said, yeah, no, this is what we're all about. Christians, we're all about this. But at the same time, it said, but we've got a lot of traditions and a lot of beliefs and a lot of practices that um, add to the Bible. And we hold both of these. And the Protestant Reformation is basically a move to say, you know what? We need to get rid of this. It's not working. It's just not working. We need to get back to the Word of God. And so you've got people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli who start reading the Scriptures for themselves and go, you know what? The, the, the early church, that's not the church I see. And, and it starts this call back to Scripture alone. We've got to come back to this and base our lives on this. Uh, and so they start doing that. And just as there is this reformation happening about coming back to the Word of God, separate to the, the, the ordained official church, it, it also sparks a reformation in the, the, the church. We, we would see as the Catholic Church now. Uh, and there's this counter-revolution that takes place there as they start being challenged. You know, oh, maybe it was a bad idea to tell people you can buy your way into heaven. Um, maybe it was a bad idea that you can buy indulgences for dead people, your relatives, to get them out of hell quicker so they can go to heaven. Maybe this is all bad ideas that we've come up with. And so there's this call back to scriptures. Now, what does that mean for the Great Commission? You've got to understand they are reacting to something here. They're coming and saying it is God and God alone. It's the scriptures alone that saves. That the church can't save you. Being baptised in the church, being ordained in the church, being married in the church, uh, being christened in the church, none of that can save you. Salvation comes from God alone. We read that in the scriptures. And so we want to be the people that say, no, only God can save. So let's sit back and watch God save people. Okay? 
Let's just sit back because we, we've got nothing to do with it. Nothing we can do. The church has taught that for ages, that we can save you. It's been in our grasp. We dispense grace. But no, no, no. Let's sit back and watch God save people. And so the, the reformers, they go out preaching scripture alone, but they preach nothing about, hey, you need to repent. And they don't preach a gospel of repentance. They don't preach a gospel where you go make disciples. That's God's job. Until the 1700s, all of a sudden, you get this holiness movement happening where people start saying, I can't sit back and watch God. I can't sit back and let God do all the work. We talk as Christians about sanctification, the process of sanctification, that God can make me holy and he sanctifies us. Maybe I've got a part to play in that. Maybe there are certain disciplines that I can do, like reading my Bible and praying daily uh, and gathering with others to pray and, and worshipping and um, exercising my gifts that God's given me. And, and we start reading Scripture. And there's this sense of, of we have a part to play in, in sanctifying us, making ourselves holy, that we can partner with God to do that. And so you get someone like Charles Wesley who comes along. And he picks up on this. And so he starts organising people. He starts gathering them together and saying, hey guys, you've got to gather and I want you to gather in groups like this and I want you to hold each other accountable. And these are the conversations you need to do and these are the practices you need to practice. And you need to, to do, do, do. You know, you need to obey the commands. And as he does that, he sets in place systems so strong that as he dies and his followers continue on with his practices, with his methods, they become known as the... Methodists, because of the methods they employed. And so it doesn't take long for someone by the name of William Carey to come along and go, you know what, if, if I can partner with God about my own salvation and my own sanctification, if I, can, if I have a role to play in my own journey with God, maybe I can have an influence on someone else's journey with God. Maybe I have a role to play in, in helping them become a disciple as well. And so you start the modern-day missionary movement. This is where we are today. Now, I've got a bit of a chart here to help explain this a little more because there's three eras within the modern missionary movement, three eras. It is William Carey who... Um, Sort of, he's one of a few, but he, he sort of starts the, one of the very first missionary agencies. And, and as a young Baptist pastor, he comes and approaches his peers, who are all older and much wiser than him, and he says, you know, we must go and declare the good news to, to the heathen, to those who have not heard the good news. We must go. And, and the response, it's a famous response. Many of you would have heard it. Um, he, he's told, in no uncertain terms, sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathens, he will well and truly do it without your help. It's what they basically say, it's not a direct quote, but it's something like that. Um, but sit down, who are you? If God wants to save them, he'll save them. Uh, but that's not good enough for him. And so he starts to go. Now, you've got to remember this is in the 1700s, late 1700s, 1800s. They don't have mobile phones, they don't have satellites, they don't have um, any means of communicating around the world. They accept letter and by ship. And so as the gospel goes from these nations that have been Christianized, they go by boat. And so where do they hit first? 
the coastal regions, don't they? And so the gospel first hits the coastlines. It's easy to get to. They're the most exposed to, to Western civilization. Um, they're, they're the most open. The, the ports and, and the languages, uh, they can communicate easily around these areas. And so that's where the gospel goes to first, the coastal regions. And so the church is actually on board. Not everybody, just a few, uh, but they start going. Then the second era kicks in. They realise, you know, we've sort of got to all the coasts and the ports, we've established ourselves there. But what about the inland? I mean, you think of China, how big that is. We've sort of got the coastline, but but what about inland? How do we get the gospel inland? And so you get people like Hudson Taylor, who comes along and and starts the first um, inland missionary, China Inland Mission. And so he decides to take the gospel. Now, that's a lot harder because they don't know the language, they don't know your culture as well. There's not as well-trodden paths to get there and reach them. And, and so it's harder work. Uh, and so he goes and, and he, he starts to dress like the Chinese. He starts to speak like them. He grows his hair like them. Like People think, who is this weird foreigner? You know, look at these white Chinamen. Um, you know, he gets criticised by, by both sides, but he's making the effort and lots follow him. Um, as you can see, it's, it's dominated by Americans and, and the missions from going out from America. But it's still a geographic strategy. But that brings us to the third era. Geographically, we've sort of gone everywhere. There's not a continent we haven't gone to. We've sent missionaries everywhere. But in doing so, we haven't really identified people groups. We haven't identified tribes and, and different linguistic groups. And, and minority groups. So we might have sent the gospel here and established churches in this area and the, the main, the majority people in that area, yeah, we've reached them, but there's two or three little minority groups, little ethnic groups that are minority that have not ever really connected at all, never heard the gospel or heard about Jesus. And so the third era is going and saying, you know, we will do... We will go to these unreached people groups. And that's why when you hear about cross-cultural ministries, you'll hear talk about unreached people groups. This is, this is why. Uh, that's where we're at. We've come to a point. That's our strategy. That's what we're, we're doing. Those in the know, those motivated. And so uh, the question is, how are we going? I mean, we live in the most privileged time ever. We are wealthier than we have ever been. We are better resourced than we have ever been. I was talking to some Koreans uh, this morning, the, the first service, and um, we're looking at Bible translations. And, um, you know, he, us as Western English speaking Christians, we, we have a, a stack of options, don't we, when it comes to Bible translations and Bible resources. We have stores you can go and buy online, you can find anything you want online. Any resource, any information you want, it's just there. We have a glut of information. We know more than anyone who's ever known. We have more free time than, than anybody who's ever lived um, to, to do with what we please, more leisure time. That We have options around what we do with our time. We have more opportunity. We have more access than any other time in history. We, of all people, are primed and ready to go and make disciples, to fulfill the Great Commission, But I have this question. Will we make disobedient decisions? Are we doing it? Or are we like the Israelites? 
We like the early church that took its eyes off of God. We like those who sit back and go, well, just let God do it. It's not my job. As privileged as we are, are we making disobedient decisions? Or are we part of fulfilling the Great Commission? Let me pray. Father God, we recognise it is your great great mission, your great vision to, to bring salvation uh, to the world, to set us free from the, the trap of sin, from the consequence of, of sin, which you tell us is, is death, both spiritual and physical death. Uh, and so you, you come to set us free from the things that trouble us most and you've entrusted that gospel to, to your people to steward that to pass that on and to to make it known. You don't leave us alone to do that. You tell us that that you have all authority, you have all power, that, that you come able to move mountains and that you will be with us at all times. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people who take your commandments seriously to be people who don't make disobedient decisions, but that choose to be obedient, that choose to to submit ourselves to your will, that choose to be part of the coming of your great kingdom, a kingdom that will know no end, where you will be glorified and the whole earth will be saved. Help us to realign priorities help us if we need to have that change of heart that we might be obedient we ask us in the name of the king of kings and lord of lords of the saviour the messiah the promised one of the one we know as jesus amen